So we'll start from Ephesians chapter two, from verse one to three. Okay, by grace, through faith. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Okay. But God. Thank you very much. One, two, three. Okay. So Paul says that you, and he's referring to his, his um, readers, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And this is the first part I would like us to focus on because Paul's language for the state of one who hasn't met Jesus, for the state of one who hasn't encountered God is that they are dead. Not that they are sick or that they are tired or that they are depressed, or that they are weary, but that they are dead. So maybe we can start by unpacking what he means here by the fact that you and I were dead in trespasses and sins, and that everyone you encounter who hasn't met Jesus is dead in trespasses and sins. What, what, what kind of death is he talking about here? What does that mean to you? So Terence writes in the chat, there is no relationship between that person and God. Okay, but how does that translate into death? How does merely not having a relationship? Why is death the language that is used? After second reading, it said that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Does it mean that like, like there's no way you can get out from sin. Like there's no way you can save yourself. Like you, like this sin has like took you. Like you can't get out from it. Like as the Bible says that if the sun doesn't set you free, you can't like you can't set yourself free. Exactly. This this is actually an amazing point that you raised, right? I wasn't even thinking about this aspect of it, but this is certainly part of what Paul means by you are dead in trespasses and sins there is no way out of the cycle of iniquity and everyone who has been saved knows that there's no way out of the cycle now think about it whatever the cycle is that you're trapped in right in most religious context most religions essentially almost every religion the cycle of death that they are trapped in is the cycle of self-righteousness which is that i can perform enough good works to be acceptable towards god of course, we studied the book of Galatians together, and we have seen how that leads to how that leads to slavery, essentially, because you're locked up in a cycle of something that you can never attain to, right? Something that you can never achieve. So that's the first, the first sense in which Paul says that you were dead in trespasses. You can also say you were without hope in trespasses. So there is no one who has 
not met Jesus that can break the cycle of death. There is no one. But another sense in which Paul means that you are dead in trespasses is that, of course, it means that you are dead to God, meaning that you are unresponsive to spiritual things, right? You cannot comprehend spiritual things because if you, if you go outside and you try to administer the death test, sort of, if you want to prove that the scripture is true and you go, you go to the public square or to the city center and you administer a test and you begin to ask people um, and you begin to try to discover if people are truly dead, like Paul said, the proof of that is how much of the consciousness of God that they have. Are they able to comprehend spiritual things? Are they able to respond to it? A dead person cannot respond to you. And the proof that someone is dead is that they, don't, they cannot respond to the things of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the natural man cannot receive them because they are spiritually discerned. So God has to do a sovereign work in each person to quicken us, as it were. That's the word the old King James uses for alive. You who were dead in trespasses, has he quickened? He has made you alive. So thank you, Terence, for that contribution. So the first thing it means to be dead in trespasses is that you are locked up in a cycle that you cannot escape from, a cycle that will ultimately culminate in spiritual death. And the second thing is that you are unresponsive to God. You cannot, you cannot feel after him. You are in a fruitless pursuit of the, of the eternal, something that you cannot lay hold on. Um, any additions to this point or before we move on? Okay, so in verse two, Paul moves on to the manifestations of death, right? Or if you like the causes of death also. He says, in which you once walked according to the cause of this world. So there's something called the cause of this world. In German, this word would be the zeitgeist. And that's what we mean by the spirit of the age. So when people um, develop a thinking pattern that is as apart from God, right? Then there is a system of thinking that dominates every particular age, right? Or every epoch of history. And the proof that one is dead in trespasses and sin is that you are, you are just a slave who is trapped in the ways of thinking that is prevalent around you. So the world is one huge factor that keeps men and women trapped and dead in sin. But another factor is a personality that Paul refers to as the prince of the power of the air. It's important to note every time you find the word prince in the scripture, um, it obviously refers to someone who has authority, but the mere fact that the person is a prince means that the person's authority needs to find a territory or a geographic location for it to find expression. So that's why Paul says things like give no place to the devil because he's only a prince. He has the capability to govern, to rule, but he has no territory. The only territory that he has is the one that you see to him. Even Christ is referred to as the Prince of Peace. So even though Jesus can step into a situation and bring peace to it, until you invite him into the situation, the situation may be lacking in peace, right? So this personality called the Prince of the Power of the Air, which is the, which is the devil himself, is the second um, proof that one is trapped in, in a cycle of deadness to sin. 
and he calls him the spirit that now works in the sons of obedience. The question for us then is how does the prince of the power of the air trap people in death, right? In cycles of death. Now I know that the Bible study has started <laughs> almost on a depressing note, right? We're talking about death and the prince of the power of the air, but I promise you it gets better. But what Paul is doing is that he wants us to paint, he wants to paint a vivid picture in our mind of how hopeless the situation is, right? Of how um, tricky and, and legally complicated the situation is and why it demanded the kind of intervention that God eventually brought in slaying Jesus on the cross. How does the prince of the power of the air, again, just like we said, if you want to administer this test and you want to check if, if this statement, right, that people are bound under a certain personality, how does this personality exec, exert its influence? If you go out there on the streets, how would you know that, yes, the prince of the power of the air is truly at work? How? How does he exercise his dominion? What's the proof of the presence of the prince of the power of the air? Or maybe to simplify the question, how does Satan influence people? Yes, did someone want to say something? Hi, Femi, welcome. Thank you. Um, well, good evening from Nigeria here. Um, good evening. For me, I just think it's in verse three because it goes um, in which we once, verse two says, we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now walks in the sons of disobedience, among whom, that is the son, people who are disobedient, we all once conducted ourselves in the loss of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of growth. So I think the easiest way to find out how people are being influenced is by looking at the fact what what way are they conducting themselves? What way are we conducting ourselves? Are we fulfilling the loss of our flesh and the desires of our minds? That's pretty much what I think. So I think the key or a key rather to that question is in verse three. That's that's awesome. That's amazing. Um, a follow-up to that then would be what do you then say to the self-righteous person, right? Who can perhaps point to nothing substantially, um, no substantial evidence, right? That they are yielding regularly to the lust of their flesh. They've had a pretty decent life growing up. And everybody around them agrees that they are morally good people, right? Is it, is it likely that such categories of people are under the influence of the prince of the power of the air? And how so? Absolutely. Um, um, I think the fact that um, there is no, let's use the word immoral activity or there is no, they, they, live, they live absolutely so morally. It doesn't mean it's, it's not lost. You know, the, the loss may just be directed towards something that looks very immoral. You know, but once, once flesh is still alive, once our spirit is not alive to God, you know, once we are dead in trespass, like we're trying to explain, once we cannot respond or we're not aware of the realities of the sins of the spirit, no matter how beautifully we conduct ourselves, I believe that person is under 
a certain influence. You know, um, John, when Nicodemus was talking to, to Jesus, Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto you, except a man is born of born again, he cannot see the kingdom. You know, so born again allows us to be to have um, an awareness of the kingdom, to be alive of the kingdom, alive to the reality of the kingdom, of course, being born of water and the spirit, the same thing. And then Jesus goes to say, what is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. So once it is not spirit, it is flesh. No matter how beautiful it looks, no matter how appealing it looks, no matter how moral or upright it looks, once it's, the source is not from the spirit, the Holy Spirit, then I, that's my thought. These are my thoughts anyway. Then I feel um, it's, it's all flesh and it's all lost of the flesh. That's just my thought. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much, Femi. Um, yeah, so you, you you kind of took us you, you kind of took us a bit forward in the study to verse three, which is perfectly fine. Um, which is the third the the third thing that locks us in death to sins, right? Which is our fallen human nature. We'll come to shortly. But your answer is very much in order. And to build on top of that, when we go back to the very beginning, right, in the book of Genesis, um Satan wanted to exercise dominion over Adam and Eve. And you might wonder, at that time, they didn't have any sinful nature in them, right? They were innocent. They had not committed any sin. So at that time, he didn't have any sinful nature to appeal to, sort of. But he had his primary weapon that he, that he uses to influence the world. Jesus calls him in John chapter 8, verse 44, the father of lies. That is his identity that is his regalia that's his portfolio that's his nature and so the way that he dominates because it's important for us to remember that satan is not like god <laughs> he's not the opposite of god and that has practical implications one of it is that satan is not omnipresent contrary to to what many people would like to believe he's not everywhere at every time he's not all-knowing either and so he's severely he's severely limited and the only way that he can exercise global control, in a sense, is through the instrument of lies. And so today, if you want to know how, if, if the prince of the power of earth is at, is at work, just investigate to find out how many lies people are building their lives and their destinies upon. So that even the self-righteous person who believes that because of their good works, they don't need God, has, has bought into a lie that is leading them down the road of destruction. It will take the mercy of God for their eyes to be open to see their need for grace and their need for salvation. This is his primary tool, right? So we've seen that the cause of this world, there is a certain spirit that is in every age, you know, that um, is a direct product of godless thinking. And by godless thinking, I simply mean thinking that doesn't emanate from the spirit of God, that doesn't consider the principles and the laws of God as its foundation, there is a cause of this world. So this is the first thing that will trip anybody off on in this world before Satan even gets to your case. And the second part is the prince of the power of the air um, who, who works in the sons of disobedience. Um, I mean, if we take the current situation, for example, um, which is the war in Europe at the moment, <laughs> well, without saying much about the situation, you, you can already see if you look beyond the news that and um, what you're reading on the news is not exactly a 
an accurate portrayal of the root cause of the conflict. You can see clearly from what's happening in the media that the Prince of the Power of the Air is, <laughs> is doing overtime to ensure that there is that the true perspective of things is not seen. And as long as that is the case, kings and rulers of the earth can take drastic actions that will complicate problems just because there's an influence that is promoting lies. So it's important even for us as believers to be aware of when the prince of the power of the air comes with lies. That's how he came to Eve and defeated all of humanity with lies. Okay. And essentially one of the things, again, it means to be dead in trespasses is that we are locked in a cycle of disobedience. So whether the disobedience is known to us or known to us, we are locked in a cycle of it. The reason Paul is doing all this build-up is that he wants to show you why God, why God is righteously angry. Because in verse 3, he talks about the wrath of God. And he says that we were by nature children of wrath. Because when people read the wrath of God, they often read it as the bad temper of God. You know, God's eccentric side, the eccentric side of God that can snap at any at any moment and the universe is, is is destroyed of course god reserves that authority and that right to do it but that's not the sense in which the new testament and especially paul understands the wrath of god like we saw in romans the wrath of god is the moral justice of god if god is a righteous god if the foundation of his throne is righteousness and truth and justice and mercy then his wrath is the response of those virtues to violations of righteousness violations of equity, violations of justice. So the wrath of God is essentially the moral justice of God. And Paul says that we were by nature children of wrath. Well, I won't ask what he means by we were by nature children of God because it's a little obvious, right? It means that we had or have a nature that produces things that make God angry. So it's almost like um, when you ask, <laughs> why does a dog behave the way it does you know why are dogs behaving in a certain way well the answer to the question is that the reason dogs behave in a certain way <laughs> is because they're dogs they have a certain nature right that produces those those qualities and that's what paul is saying here that that the sinful life is rooted in the sinful nature that sinful nature once when we go back to genesis again is rooted in the principle of self so you see, it's not that human beings by themselves are good or are evil, because at the end of the day, <laughs> they ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so they are both good and evil. So it's not like human beings are fully evil or fully good. The root of the problem is that all humanity is self-centered. And everything that you call lost is rooted in self. Everything that you call flesh is rooted in that principle of self. It's a nature that we are born with. The baby who is born tomorrow only cares about its own joy, satisfaction, and everything. And that's why God puts us in the context of family so that we can learn things like things like sacrifice and discipline that will balance out um, that self-nature or that self-tendency, essentially. That's the nature that we carry. And this nature... <laughs> produces things that that offend the justice of God so this is what it means to be dead in trespasses that we are locked up in humanity as a whole is locked up in a cycle right 
that we cannot escape from. It's important when we deal with unbelievers for us to, to strike at the heart of the problem. Paul didn't say that we are sick. No, we are sick, so we just need to go to intensive care and take some medication and we'll be fine. What we need <laughs> is not resuscitation, you know. What we need is resurrection, right? What we need is the injection of fresh life, the injection of fresh life. And that is exactly what God brought to the table. In the next few verses, we'll read um, verse 4 to verse 7, Terence. All right. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Terence. So Paul then introduces the joker of all eternity. And that joker is these two words, but God. You know, things can, be, things can be as terrible as they have ever been in any situation. But there is always the joker of, but God. If you remember the story of Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And that was supposed to mark the end of his dreams, the end of his destiny. And when he was recounting the story to his brothers, in Genesis chapter 50, he said, you sold me into slavery, but God, you, you, you had terrible plans for me. Left to you, you would have destroyed me, but God. You know, it's very important for us to remember that the fact that we are standing on the ground that we stand on today is because of God. Because what Paul is doing here is that he's contrasting the nature of God to the nature of sin that dominates the earth and that dominated us, Right. So we've seen that sin produces several things such as disobedience. But Paul says that God is rich in mercy. Another way to understand this is to simply say that God is love. He is rich in mercy. The reason why, why God decided to, to forgive, one of the reasons why God decided to forgive is because love is inherent in him. The same way our self-nature produces the works of the flesh. <sighs> The love that is in God is what produces his mercy. So because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, when we were locked up in this cycle of, mis of misery, in this cycle of sin, he quickened us. He made us alive together with Christ. Um, so he didn't just make us alive. He united our destiny with the destiny of Christ. And then he gave us a position says, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. And this is the key metaphor, right, of the first part of this book, in the, of the Christian's legal position in the heavens. Paul says that we are seated. What does it mean to be seated in the spirit, right, in the heavenly places? How do you understand this? So he raised us up. He quickened us. He, he, he resurrected us. He injected his life in us, like, like Femi said, and opened the eyes of our understanding so that we could discern his kingdom, so that we could begin to respond to his love, 
because the love of God can be all around you, but until he quickens you, you cannot respond to that love. Right? But he didn't stop there. He raised us up and he made us, he united us with Christ. He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. How do you understand this? Because this is, this is your position. This is, Paul is showing you your documents, your legal documents, you know? Like most refugees cross, crossing into Western Europe would probably be given documents that permit them to stay in Western Europe, right? And Paul is presenting to you your documents. It says you're seated together. What does that mean? Okay, Stephanie writes that we enjoy the same privileges as Christ. Exactly. So to be seated essentially refers to authority, right? It refers to a throne. It means that we can begin to operate from the heavens. For you to be able to operate from the heavenly places, you have to be seated there. Um, so it means that we have the right, we have the place, we have the authority to operate from the heavenly places. So God didn't just quicken us and make us alive. He also gave us a throne, right? Um, and this throne has access to the resources of God. It means that if you're sitting here today, like I've said before, you can operate from the heavens. Your life can be governed by the invisible realm because in chapter one, when we looked at what the heavenly places meant, we were very clear that this doesn't necessarily mean the skies, you know, because if you have a telescope and you look through space, you're not going to see what Paul is calling the heavenly places. The heavenly places essentially refers to the invisible realm, right? And he has given us the possibility to operate from that realm. He has given us the possibility to operate legitimately from that realm. And that speaks of authority. So he has made us to sit together in the heavenly places. And the, and the question that naturally follows is, to what end, right? Um, which you can, you can also rephrase the question to say, what do you do with someone who you've made alive, right? Paul has said that we were dead in trespasses. And then he has said that, God made us alive. When, when you make someone alive, what do you do with them? Well, the answer to that question is that you give them a purpose because life needs to have a reason. Life needs to have meaning. And what we see as a hint in verse 7 is that God's um, salvation for us is one that is eternal in scope. The life that God has given us in Christ is not one that he intends to withdraw in eternity. Is not one that is going to end at some point because it, its purpose reaches into ages to come. So we are living in a particular age and if anything happens, maybe the return of Jesus <laughs> or maybe a nuclear war and this age comes to an end. Paul says that there are ages to come and that God needs to showcase the riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. So it's the, it's the farthest in history that we have to, the, to, to like prehistoric times, essentially. And if you, if you look at how the book begins, it, said it, it began with God and his adversary, the enemy, as it were, having a conversation. And the conversation centered around a man, Job. And the, the, the conversation even touched on the integrity of God, right? That, of course, the reason that this guy is following you is because you have surrounded him 
you have given him everything. But hey, I want to show that he doesn't really love you and that the, the only reason this relationship exists is because it's a mutually beneficial one to an extent. Paul is saying that those kind of questions will not exist in eternity because every time those kind of questions are raised, the riches of his grace will be displayed in us in Christ. The fact that we are partakers of that inheritance, partakers of the, of the age to come will be sufficient proof throughout the ages that God is a God of kindness and mercy. Because the way James summarized the story of Job, summarizes the story of Job, is that he says, you have seen the end of the Lord, how that the Lord is full of mercy and compassion. Okay? So we want to investigate further the end to which God saved us, right? So we'll continue reading from verse 8 to verse 10. Terrence? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for his good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work in them. Okay, thank you. I think this is a memory verse that every believer should know. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What is grace, right? Grace is, you can call grace any of the simplistic definitions around, right? Which is unmerited favor. And that means a disposition of favor towards someone. And if something is termed favor, it implicitly has the idea of it being unearned or undeserved. It's an implicit position of favor towards another. And it says that that's how your salvation was, was secured. There was no amount of works you could have done, righteous works you could have done to have earned the grace of God. There's no amount of dead works that you were involved in before you came to Christ that were sufficient for God to completely severe you from the possibility of his grace. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So it's important to notice again that salvation is the gift of God. We touched on this topic when we did chapter one, where we tried to look at the boundaries between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And we said that God determines things to a certain extent and our free will picks up from there to execute God's counsel. And so the place to begin our relationship with God is the place where it actually began, which is that it was a gift. The idea of a gift is that it wasn't earned, right? You, you, you didn't, <laughs> so in Germany, Actually, um, the practice here is that you, you tell people what gift you would like them to give you, especially in relationships. Say, okay, for Christmas, I would like to have X, Y, Z. And so when you eventually get the gift, you don't act surprised. I, I think they are very pragmatic and practical here, um, um, essentially. But the, the <laughs> what the Germans practice is not the idea of a gift because a gift is, is unmerited. It's not requested for. Um, it's not asked for. And that's how salvation is. And Paul is saying that you were not saved by works, lest anyone should boast, right? And it's very important when we read the word works in scripture, because Paul uses it again shortly to understand the qualifier or the type of works that Paul is referring to. When he says you're not, you were not saved by works, he said, it essentially means that none of us was saved by righteous works, right? No matter how good your works are, your works by themselves are not the token of your salvation. 
And we've seen why, because the issue is not that, oh, you were a good person who had some problems, right? Or some weaknesses, no. The issue is that you were dead. And anything sort of resurrection is not sufficient to come into a relationship with God. Because, I mean, like Europe is facing some kind of humanitarian crisis at the moment, and you can see an outpouring of good works, right? As it were, an outpouring of love. And you might wonder if people are this love, loving and caring, they are, they are at the border taking care of, of um, people who have been displaced from their homes and they're essentially giving up their lives for these people. Are you saying to me that um, God will not accept them? The question is a question of death, right? It's not a question of works. Are you quickened? Have you been made alive? Has the spirit of God injected his life in you? And you're going to see a difference between the kind of works that are motivated by the news, essentially, and the kind of works that God has called us to, right? So verse 10 says that we are his workmanship. Workmanship here is not, doesn't have the idea of a workshop. The Greek word actually means poetry. So we are, we are, we are a story that God is telling, essentially. We are, we are God's poem. God is trying to say something through our salvation, through, through everyone that God chose, through the unique identity, unique pathway of everyone that God ordained for salvation. He's, he's telling a unique story. Now, he says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you see the difference. We were not saved by works, but we were saved for good works. Now, it, it's very important for us to realize that even though we are not saved by righteous living or by any good thing we could have done, God has work to do, right? He has work to do. And just like we saw in chapter one, he's counting on you and I for that work. And the question that remains open is, what happens if your life does not meet this expectation? We're going to see at the end of the chapter what the implication of it would be if your life does not meet this expectation. Because it's very clear that he had an, a hope and expectation for good works. But the thing that separates these good works from every other kind of good works is that they were prepared beforehand, right? Every other good kind of good work that we see is good, but it is primarily reactionary, right? So you, you can tell that it is coming from the good side of humanity. Remember that humanity ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So at the, at the peak of our humanity will produce both good and evil. We cannot be absolutely good. And to a large extent, we cannot be absolutely evil. At the peak, at the apex of our humanity will produce both good and evil. So there is a certain kind of good, which is not necessarily God that is in humanity for sure. And the way those kind of works are separated from the kind of works that Paul is speaking of, the good works that Paul is speaking of is their preparation. So what that means is that the particular context that God places you in is an indication of what he has prepared for you to do. It's very possible for you to despise that context and begin to follow the motivational speakers and begin to aim high and dream big. But there is a context in which God has designed that, that, that the glory of his life in you will be expressed, right? There are countless stories of people that have brought many to Christ just by cooking food and giving to them. You know, you're not going to 
think naturally that cooking food and giving to people has any impact on the divine purpose. But you see, if, if the work was prepared before, beforehand, then it can accelerate God's purpose on the face of the earth. So friends, there's a work that was prepared for us. God has work upon the face of the earth and it is a good work. And that is why he needs a, he needs, he needs a community of people upon the face of the earth because Paul will now switch into the thought. He will now switch back to the thoughts of the church, of the community that God is building for to, um, to propagate this work that he has upon the face of the earth. Okay. Okay. Terence, can you read for us from verse 11 to 13? Therefore, sorry, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called on circumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, sorry, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far, sorry, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Okay, thank you. I think this block of verses is very straightforward, right? Um, so he's saying that the main hindrance to God's search for a community, for a house, for a body upon the face of the earth is a certain divide that God himself introduced from the Old Testament where he separated the circumcision from the, unc from the uncircumcised. And what that essentially means practically is that anyone who doesn't know Christ, right, has some problems. Essentially, the first one, Paul says that you were without Christ. Now, remember that every possibility that Paul is presenting to us is wrapped up in Christ. Christ is the epicenter of all possibilities. Like I mentioned earlier, that we have the possibility of operating from the heavenly places. Right? So it means that if you have a challenge, for example, without going to see a native doctor or you know, without applying the laws of power, the 48 laws of power or the laws of seduction, you can apply greater laws from the heavens, you know, to move the situation in the direction of the will of God. Of course, if you're applying God's power, it has to be in the direction of the will of God. All of that possibility, the fact that you can stay in your room and hold hands with your brother and shift things upon the face of the earth, it finds its, its reality in Christ. The fact that you can be quickened and made alive to God, it finds his reality in Christ. The fact that you can receive grace, you can receive a righteousness that is not your own, which is like a capital investment of, of the Holy Spirit. That advantage, that positional advantage is found in Christ. So the problem with the Gentile or anyone who doesn't know Jesus is that they are without Christ. And by extension, they are without all the privileges that come with being in Christ. And then he calls them aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So this refers to some kind of nationhood, right? They are without a true citizenship. I mean, we've seen people fleeing Ukraine and it appears as though, for example, Russia is bent on 
completely destabilizing the country and destroying many parts of it. And what that means is that um, what people call their land or their home is quite fleeting and quite transient. And even though many of us might be in locations that are peaceful, there is no war, it doesn't take too much for that situation to change very quickly, either through a natural disaster or through a man-made one, right? So that in a sense, nobody, no matter how secure they are, can truly call any piece of land like a lasting home for themselves. My point is that each person that lives upon the face of the earth to have true security will need a citizenship that is beyond the earth. Will need a home beyond the earth, right? And that's why the rich young ruler, even though he had everything and he had all the securities that you could ask for upon the face of the earth, he said, good Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So not only are they without Christ, they are without a citizenship. And I'm giving us these tips just in case you, you, you have the opportunity to share the gospel with, with a non-believer. They need Christ, but they also need a citizenship, a home. And then he says, they were strangers from the covenant of promise. And the covenant of promise, right, are the covenants that contain the promise. Um, so not only do they not have Christ or citizenships, they don't have covenants. Friends, up with your, um, for your walk upon the face of the earth to be fruitful and successful, you're going to need covenants. Even the law of seed time and harvest time that all of us take advantage of to promote our prosperity and our lives is based on the covenant that God made with Noah. That seed time and harvest time. If, if God didn't wrap up that idea in a covenant, you and I wouldn't have been able to cast a seed to the ground and trust that there will be harvest, right? And you can take that principle and expand it even to intellectual endeavors, right? That you and I would not have been able to labor, burn the midnight candle as it were, and be guaranteed of a return on investment if that was not wrapped up in a covenant. There are certain covenants that God gave Israel, and the covenant of promise primarily talks about the promise of the Spirit. You see, the promise of the Spirit is the promise of rivers in dry places, the water of heaven, so that it doesn't matter that someone may be locked up in prison or locked up in a dark and narrow place. He has a covenant that guarantees that he can receive water, spiritual refreshing in that place. It's a, it's a, it's a covenant of promise. you know. And so everyone who rejects Christ needs to answer what their hope is when everything that's of earth is removed. So not only are they without a covenant, they're also without hope. Now in Paul's day, the, the replacement for hope was, was philosophy. And in our day, the replacement for hope is psychology um, and psychology and even atheism, right? But one thing that is common about these three, whether you talk about philosophy or psychology or atheism, is that they are very good at diagnosing the problem. But by doing that, they also leave you completely helpless to solving the problem. So a psychologist can tell you that, you know, the reason that you're like this is because you haven't really forgiven your mother, right? And that's very spot on. They are able to descend to that level. But that's the limit to which the psychologist's ability to help you reaches because the psychologist cannot help you forgive your mother. The psychologist, except if they're Christian, does not have any basis upon which you should forgive your mother. It's only in Christ 
that you have a reason for everything, that you have a basis for everything. So such a worldview, and I'm not telling you this just theologically, I'm telling you this practically from encountering people in my current context who have tried the way of psychology and have found exactly what I'm telling you, which is that it is a hopeless doctrine and it is without God in the world. So it is, it is brilliant at analyzing the problem, at laying it bare, but the power to walk in the liberty that is on offer cannot come from psychology itself. You have to find that power from elsewhere. That's why we have all kinds of <laughs> productivity tools, you know, um, and new productivity tools are coming up. But um, I'm, I'm still waiting to see um, genuine data on anybody whose life was truly transformed by a productivity tool. It needs to be something outside of the tool itself so that the tool is just a resource to manage something that's already rumbling in your spirit. So he has presented these things that you miss out on. And it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Can you read verse 14 to 18, Terence? For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Having abolished in his flesh the, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that, that is the law of, of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that, and that he might reconcile them both in God in one, in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached to you who were afar off and those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Okay, thank you. So Paul begins to talk about a peace mission. <laughs> So Christ came for a peace mission. And I can tell you that he has come in your life or he came in your life for a peace mission. And he came so that you can take up that peace mission. First of all, Paul says that he himself is our peace. Now, what Paul is saying essentially in verse 14 and verse 15 is that part of the hindrance to God's plan, universally speaking, is the historic separation between Jews and Gentiles. And that historic separation didn't come from Satan, it came from God himself. It was contained in the law. So if you know about the tabernacle of Moses, for example, you'll find out that anyone who wasn't Jewish and who didn't keep the ordinances of what it meant to be Jewish wasn't allowed beyond certain sections of the tabernacle. So that's, that's the imagery of the wall of partition that Paul is speaking of, right? That divides, that separates Jews and Gentiles. And of course, remember that this letter is written in the first century and this, these problems are, are still very real at that time. Um, so that's what he means by the law of commandment. Of course, it's needless to, well, not needless, it's important um, to mention again, right, that the reason God chose one nation, God didn't have to choose any nation at all after what happened at the Tower of Babel. But the reason he chose one is that his hope was that through that one nation, he would eventually reach all nations. 
But if that agenda was going to succeed, God first needed to separate them because they couldn't have been mixed up with the other nations and yet still um, show clearly that God was responsible for their nationhood. That's why God said to Abraham, I want you to leave everything, right? Because I want to start anew with you. Like, I don't want to share the glory of what I'm about to do with any God. Of course, Diana was the princess that was heavily worshipped in Ephesus that these people turned from. And yeah, God called out Abraham and says, hey, I want to pioneer a foundation with you. I want to do something different in your destiny. And I don't want it to be tied to your background, to your history, to your historical advantages or religious position, your current system. So it was actually a matter of necessity that God needed to separate a people for himself. But God's intention was not that the separation would continue. So he chose one so that he could eventually choose all. And so in Christ, that middle one wall of partition was completely destroyed. And then he tells us that it was destroyed so that God could create in himself one new man. Now, this is another metaphor for the church, right, that Paul uses. And he's going to develop this metaphor better in Ephesians chapter 4. So we'll leave it till that time. But essentially, the way God sees the church is one new man from two and thus making peace. So you can, like we said when we did Ephesians chapter 1, that if you look through the history of the church, it's been very difficult for us to be one indeed, to be united. And we've always had factions, whether the, the, the factions are between, um, I guess, Pentecostals and more orthodox types, um, or they are within even, for example, um, Pentecostal and charismatic circles. There's always been some kind of separation. And what you notice is that God hasn't really favored anyone more than the other. Right, you, there is none that doesn't have significant problems. There is none that doesn't have significant breakthroughs and blessings also. And that is the point that you and I, that God is not interested in that kind of separation. His vision, even though we have not earnestly pursued it, is one new man, not two, not three, not four, but one new man, right? And in verse 16, Paul reuses the metaphor of verse of chapter one, that God's aim is to reconcile both Gentile and Jews to God in one body through the cross, That's therefore putting to death the enmity. Again, you see this metaphor that we are the body of Christ, one body. Just to mention here, we, we touched a little bit on the principles of the body. You can see why Paul places a lot of emphasis in his ministry about sins that divide the body, such as sexual immorality. He says this kind of sin is not just involving you, it involves your body. And that is why it is very problematic in the heavens because God's vision is one new man, one body. So we are as weak as the weakest person in the church. And we are as strong <laughs> as the strongest person in the church so that our strength is in our ability to operate as one human. And that is why even in the face of war, for example, the only solution to peace is that the church comes back to operating as one human, right? And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. And this is what God is calling us to do, to be messengers of his peace 
that hey you can have access to the father right you can have access to him and paul repeats this same dichotomy of peace and access because in romans chapter 5 he tells us that because we have peace with god we now have free access and that is the same the same testimony the same good news right that we can offer that hey even though you are trapped in a cycle of lies, like we saw earlier, in a cycle of death, you can have peace with God through Christ. He has paid the price. And when that happens, an entire economy of access opens to you. And what happens when that economy of access opens to you? Terence, can you redefine our three verses? Okay, let me read from my Bible. Now, can you hear me? Can you read this one? Okay. Uh, all right. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen. Amen. So Paul arrives at his conclusion. This whole journey he's telling us. The reason why God went the length that he went to unite both Jew and Gentile to quicken those who were dead in sins, even while they were still dead, it was because he was looking for a house, All right? Well, let's begin from verse 19. He says, you are no longer strangers. So it's possible that even though you are a believer, you are still operating like a stranger. You are still operating like one who doesn't have covenants. You are operating like one who doesn't have a citizenship, right? You are operating like one who doesn't belong to a body. And so you are doing whatever you like with your body. Right. Well, Paul is saying that now, now, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, right? It's, in, it's important that we, that we throw away the identity of strangers. That if it is indeed true that he has seated us in the heavenly places, then it means we have the right, the authority, the privilege, the access to operate from that place. And so we, we, we ought not to lie down in defeat, and allow the will of Satan be established whenever it is that we see him roaring like a lion. It says you are no longer strangers, right? You are also no longer homeless, right? You, you, you have a community. Now, this is something that we touched on towards the end of our study last week, which is that each of us must fight tooth and nail to overcome the spirit of individual Christianity. Like you're going to see in this entire book of Ephesians, it is an antithesis to the entire plan of God. It was never the will of God that the strength of the church would be in one person. But we have essentially got into a place where we are sort of comfortable to be individuals floating around. And this is not just a physical, physical and practical thing. It also, it's also a psychological thing. You know, If I may ask you, do you have brothers and sisters that you can talk to, you can confess your faults to, you can hold hands, as Jesus said, and agree on a thing together with. Or is it just all smiles? And hey, hello. He says, you are fellow citizens. Don't act like a stranger. 
don't act like you are homeless. You have a home. Locate in the city where God has planted you physically. Locate in that place the fellow citizens of heaven and begin to build a place where the presence of God can rest. Begin to build. Every time that two believers come together and begin to pray, I can assure you an, an edifice in the spirit begins to form. I can assure you of this because I've, by the grace of God, I've done it in every city that God has planted me in. Just two believers coming together to pray, three believers, four believers, an edifice begins to form because God's vision, in the, like he communicated in the book of Malachi, is that in every place, incense and a pure offering will rise before me and my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And when God sees that you are consistent, he begins to take interest in what you're building. And then if what you're building is according to the pattern of heaven, his presence begins to fill it. So that in that city, in that territory, God has a place where incense can rise, where prayer can rise, where the sick can be brought and they're delivered, where the unsaved can be brought and the yoke of darkness over them is broken. He says, you're no longer strangers. So don't act like one, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and you're members of the household of God. Friends, it's a house that God is building. Like, remember I told you earlier that God has work to do and that this work was prepared for us. In this season of fighting in Europe, there's a work for you to do. And it's my, it's my prayer that God will help you locate that work. Since we're members of the household of God. So members means that my life is not as unimportant as I often think it is. My prayer life is not as isolated as I think it, as, as I think it is. What I do with my life matters. The investments I make matter. My, my, my choices can derail the purposes of God in the land. I'm, I'm a member of the household of God. My life is not meaningless. My life is connected to a superstructure that is mighty, that God himself wants to inhabit. And he says that this structure is built on the foundation of the apostles. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Right, if you want to know more about this, you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 um, about Christ being the foundation. And so the vision that Paul has for the church is that we are God's building. We are fitted together and we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. He says, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. When we recognize that we were saved for good works and we begin to dedicate our lives to the expression of those good works, God has a home on earth that he can dwell. His presence has a resting place upon the earth. It's, it's the cry of my heart that in the place where God has planted you, he will have a home. He will have a temple. He will have a dwelling place where his presence can rest. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.